This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Spectacularly gorgeous, and it's a real privilege uh, to be able to sit here and a privilege uh, for me to be able to, to give this talk. Um, so... I read somewhere that when you give a talk, you should never start with an apology. So I'd like to apologize uh, to begin with, because I don't know very many people here, but I'm kind of assuming that people have kind of been here a couple of times, or not. Those like I was going to assume one thing and then the other, but it doesn't really make any actual difference. But it seemed like a good way to begin the talk, so I start with an apology. And uh, actually, this is going to be two talks, um, two talks in one. Some of you may remember the Sertz ad. Sertz is a candy mint. No, Sertz is a breath mint. See? You, no? Sertz is a candy mint. Sertz is a breath mint. Two mints in one. This is two talks in one. There's going to be a Dharma talk. And then there's going to be a book talk. That's because I wrote a book. See? Book talk. And the book talk isn't just going to be about the book. It's going to be sort of about what the book is about, which is the Gesar epic, which um, is the national epic of Tibet that's been around for about a 1,000 years. Um, and uh, well, we'll talk about that when we get to the book talk, because the book talk is the second part. The first part is the Dharma talk. And, um, and this is a little bit, I've done a few of these, not tons of them, but this is a little darker than the usual one that I do, and I'm not exactly sure why. I think it's maybe it's the winter, or I, I don't know. Um, but I want to talk uh, about something we don't usually talk about when we talk about Dharma talks, which uh, uh, relates not just to the, to the Gesar epic, though it also relates to the Gesar epic, but relates to our world fundamentally. And uh, since Dharma, um, Dharma, we usually think of it as meaning teaching, sort of the teaching of the Buddhas, the Dharma that uh, was transmitted to disciples and has continued on uh, for uh, thousands of years. Uh, but Dharma also, um, at least in the Tibetan, but I think in, in Sanskrit also, refers to uh, phenomena. It refers to uh, not just the teaching, but how we view reality. And uh, it refers to reality itself. And uh, it refers to the essence of reality and the quality of reality and how we as individuals do certain things so that even simple things have a dharma. So there's a dharma of making bread and there's a dharma of building a house and there's a dharma of taking a walk in the woods and uh, there's the dharma which we refer to in general as the uh, teachings of the Buddha and uh, that which uh, has been passed down but I'm going to talk more about the Dharma as how we view reality itself, how we see things. The notion of, of coming to Dharma is the notion of seeing things how they actually are, seeing the reality as it actually is, 
rather than uh, what we tend to do, which is layer it. When we put something, we add something to it. The last thing that we all read together was kind of about adding stuff or subtracting stuff, which is sort of, you know, if you remember first grade uh, mathematics, adding and subtracting is kind of the same process. You're adding something, but you're changing the, the phenomena itself. And so that if you don't add or you don't subtract, then you actually have the phenomena and the essence of the nature of reality all, all sort of ball together as uh, our own understanding. And so that's the particular dharma that we're talking about. And in the dark part is that uh, I want to talk about violence. Now, uh, when you do dharma talks, I've done many more dharma talks than I have book talks by a lot. Um, anyway, when you talk uh, about uh, dharma, you, you, there's a wide range of things you can talk about. You actually can talk about anything, as we said, since dharma represents phenomena. But you commonly talk about sort of the nature of reality or how we see things or, or, or the role of conflicting emotions in how we see things, whether, whether it's uh, anger uh, or jealousy or rage or regret or lust or embarrassment or shame. Um, how, how the different emotional states uh, color our perception and that all of these colored perceptions eventually lead to a very solid uh, notion of who we are and what we are. Our, our ego or our ego structure or whatever you want to call that has, has uh, uh, been built up over our entire lifetime. Some Buddhists would say over many lifetimes. But, but so that the, the, the thing that is ourselves is not the thing that's got all this sort of stuff added and stuff deleted. It's just sort of ourselves uh, without, without the biases and the preconceptions and the conceptualizations. And uh, one of the main conceptualizations we might have as Buddhists, since, I mean, we're here anyway, in this Buddhist place, is that Buddhists are peaceful. You know, they're calm and equanimous and they sort of sit and, and they don't move very much. And, and their movement sort of reflects the fact that they've developed uh, control over their mind and they're equanimous, peaceful people. And we all sort of might even think about, about ourselves that way, possibly, or not depending. But the notion is that we have, we have a, a little bit of an overlay as to what we think that Buddhists are. That there, there are these nonviolent, lovely people. And if you look at contemporary society, uh, you might think that if you, you know, weren't a Muslim minority in Southeast Asia uh, currently. Um, and if you went back a um, thousand years to Tibet, uh, for instance, since this is a Tibetan story, um, you might not think that because the different factions that developed after the uh, first and second spreading of Buddhism into Tibet, they didn't have a really loving relationship with each other. 
And there was, you might know the stories of the yellow hats and the red hats, and one group went with the Mongols, and another group went with the Chinese, and they fought about that, really, up until our, almost our era. And if you look to Japan, um, they've had some violence in, within their Buddhist community, all the way, either you look back to the, some of the, the samurai sword traditions um, and what they did for a living, or into the late 19th century with the uh, Japanese Manchurian War, um, supported by D.T. Suzuki, among others, or into the, into the mid-20th century, uh, where Zen priests, for the most part in Japan, supported the war effort. Um, not that most religious people in this country didn't support the other side of the war effort. It's, it's sort of that that story, I think, as Buddhists, we tend to underplay it. We don't like it. It's not comfortable. We'd rather talk about sex or money. A fellow I know who is a musician just wrote a book about uh, compassion, emptiness, and making a buck. That's David Nickturn. But anyway, and you can buy that book. I think it's a wisdom publication. just came out. I haven't read it. But, but so you can talk about money, and there's endless books about sex, and you can talk about uh, uh, emotional uh, upheavals of one sort or another. You can talk about the relationship of, of Zen uh, meditation to mindfulness. So I saw that was a topic of some discussion a few weeks ago. Or is it coming up a few weeks ago? Um, but violence is sort of, it's kind of a little bit the third rail. And uh, I think it's important to talk about the third rail because it's usually the third rail is the one that we attempt to avoid. We attempt to try to see our world without the third rail incorporated. And by doing that, we have, uh, if you will, subtracted something. We've subtracted something from our history as Buddhists. We subtracted something from ourselves because all of us experience anger. I mean, even some of the Buddhists I know experience anger. And, and what is violence but, but anger taken outside? It's, it's part of the same thing. It's sort of when a group of people feel that they can uh, express their anger towards another group. And it's commonly, getting back to the notion or the metaphor of edge, uh, or adding and subtracting, uh, edge is usually imp very important. You know, the people who live on the other side of the stream don't quite get it. The whole theory of, you know, the relationship of scapegoat, or scapegoatism to religion. It has to do with, with why religions can kill each other. is because they're not really killing each other. It's actually they're killing the other. And the other is otherized. That is made into the barbarians who live on the other side of the stream, or the other side of the ocean, or the other side of the border, uh, or the other side of the block or the house next door, that they're not really like us. And so we're actually, um, we're in the business of saving them. We're in the business of making them better. And so we have, and we have lots of things we could do. We could talk to them, and if that doesn't work, we could talk a little more, or we could invite them over for tea, and if that doesn't work, or they'd, maybe they're not that interested 
in learning our way. And so they may be rejected and, and you know, it, things escalate a little bit. And then eventually we can liberate them, um, um, which usually is a religious euphemism for killing them and bringing them because then and the next time around we will have actually done them a really big favor. The thing that they really need is to be uh, liberated in, in that way. Anyway, uh, so that, that's the notion of violence as it relates to, to us as, as people and to us as members uh, or perhaps members or thinking about becoming members or uh, of one group or another is how do groups uh, relate to other groups and how do they see other groups and, and, um, and I think it's important. I mean, it's easy to talk about a lot of stuff and it's harder to talk about some other stuff. And so I think this particular third rail is worth all people acknowledging that we participate in an economy, we participate in, in various different groups that see other groups in different ways that aren't always so uh, wonderful. And, and, and equanimity uh, is a brush uh, that can cover a, a great many things. And, uh, you know, there's the old adage of, you know, calm on the outside and, you know, like a duck in the water, calm on the outside and paddling like crazy on the inside. You know, when people are covering things up, it requires a great deal more paddling. There's a great deal more work um, to maintain uh, the protection of our own uh, ego structure. And then whether that's uh, relating uh, to, to aggression um, or shame or regret um, or ignorance, uh, or all of the above, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's sort of, uh, it, it's not sort of owning up to what, to, to what we are, you know. So there's, there's a lot to be said uh, for, uh, for being uh, genuine and, and, or synchronous. And the idea of genuine is, is simply acknowledging uh, the root. Uh, the root is really important. The fundamental root is who we are and what we are. And then there's the stuff we subtract and the stuff that we add. But it's always, it's always coming back to just that, that simple, clear quality of mind uh, that's just uh, open space. Um, there's another in... Um, uh, I don't, you know, the problem is I'm sort of overly Tibetalized. Uh, it, there's a term dharmakaya, which means the kaya is the Tibetan word, for, or actually the Sanskrit word. Yeah, Sanskrit word. Uh, I'm sorry, this is my wife, Jane. She's the editor and Tibetan translator. And so when I look over here, I'm just looking really for either, or, <laughs> or let's get out of here. Or. Anyway, kaya is a Sanskrit word that, that just means form or body. And dharmakaya is the space of the body, but really it refers to a wide open space. It's a, it's, a, it's a mind, it's a term for formless mind. It's a term for pristine awareness. You know, so when you're sitting up, you know, against looking into space or looking at a wall or, or just whatever, the sort of the, 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 the naked awareness when things are just completely open, that complete uh, sense of uh, awake. 
is, is dharmakaya. So that's another form of dharma. So when we think of dharma and coming back to the root of dharma, we're coming back to the root of, of existing within dharmakaya, or in the body of dharmakaya. And uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that's the notion of violence and, uh, and anger and borders and, 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 and being in touch with the full range of, of who we are and, and how we uh, got here. And uh, so that's the Dharma part of the Dharma talk. That's the Dharma part of the entire talk. Now for the book talk, I'm going to talk about Geser of Ling. Book. And first I want to talk a little bit about how this book came about. This has a lot to do with her as well. Um, epic literature is epic literature in, in every society has epic literature and has certain form formats. And um, so you can think of Beowulf or the Odyssey and the Iliad or tell the Genji. There are great epic tales within every uh, civilization, and Tibet is uh, no different. And in uh, the uh, 10th century or 11th century of Tibet, um, this uh, tale began, and for almost a thousand years it was an oral tradition. Uh, it is bard by bard. It was performed and never written down. The first written copy uh, was actually in Mongolia in 1738. I can see nobody's writing that down. <laughs> anyway, um, and then it's been written down a few times uh, after that, and then um, a famous set of woodblocks of the 120 volumes of the epic, 20 million words, world's largest epic, uh, uh, were prepared at the end of the 19th century. Uh, by a Tibetan teacher who was sort of a Gesar fanatic. And there's many Gesar fanatics in Tibet. It's a, it's a big deal. It's, you know, all the boys want to be Gesar and all the girls want to be his wife or his mother. Drukmo or Gokmo. And, and that's how they play. And, that, and that's still true. And there are still bards. There are hundreds or thousands of bards within the Tibetan plateau now performing the various different tales. And, and my teacher, uh, Trogon Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, was from Tibet, and uh, he, like many Tibetans, loved the Gesar thing, and he used to talk about it, and when he promulgated what's known as the Shambhala teachings, there's a lot of sort of Gesar stuff that's in there. And um, because it's more, it's more cultural than it is religious. And there's plenty of Buddhism in this Gesar. Um, because this comes from the woodblocks of somebody who was a Tibetan Buddhist master or teacher. But there are other versions of Gesar. There's a Persian version, there's a Buryat version, there's a Ladakhi version, there's a Chinese version, there's a Burmese version, there's an Indian version. Those are the ones we sort of know about. And they're not all quite as Buddhist as this one. But anyway, the 120 volumes that were put together uh, was something that Trungpa was interested in, and he had a student who eventually moved to Milwaukee, where we lived. Um, and uh, he, for his, uh, he got a PhD in comparative um, uh, literature. And for his PhD um, thesis, he had translated the first volume of the Gesura epic, because it had never actually been word for word translated into English from the Tibetan. Anyway, to make a really long story, I mean, this could go on for hours. 
But anyway, to make a long story short, he died. And the two, pe two t uh, people that he translated with, who used to come to Milwaukee, Sangay Kondro and Lama Chonam, who lived mostly in Ashland, Oregon, um, had come every year for five years, and they had done a rough translation of the um, first three volumes, which is sort of the, the, the beginning story of Gesar. It's his birth and his um, early adolescence, and then he becomes king at the end of the third volume. That's all in, in this book. But anyway, um, he, uh, Robin uh, and Sange and Lama Chonam, um, for reasons that I don't really understand, they broke up. Sort of a, they, they had sort of a falling out. And, um, and we lived in Milwaukee at the time, and Jane had sort of begun becoming a translator. And then Robin, who is um, a dear friend as well as my patient, developed cancer and died. And then after he died, this was in 2007, um, it was suggested that, that Jane, who had worked with Robin for many years before his death on various projects, including this one, um, help Sange and Lama Chonam compile a book in sort of in Robin's memory and get it published. And Shambhala published in 2013 or 2012 the first three volumes of the Gesar epic taken from the rough translation that they had done that Jane had worked and I had done some editing on. And, um, and it was a very, Robin, you'd have to know Robin, well, because that's harder now, being dead and all. But had you known Robin, he was a very literary, scholarly, classic, he knew, he knew five or six languages and was also kind of nuts and loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer and had a few other idiosyncrasies, which we don't need to get into. But um, anyway, he had wanted a very scholarly academic thing, so that's what they produced. And so there's a, a book that you can buy from Shambhala or Amazon. Uh, which is the Gesar of Ling, the, the book that they did. And then um, it was suggested a few years after that 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 could be condensed into something more readable um, because that's a very literary scholarly book that's sort of studied in literary scholarly places, but actually humans can have difficulty reading it, to put it politely, since the compiler's in the room. Um, and so I retold re the book. Um, and um, I like to tell this story that uh, I was sitting on a couch. How long is this supposed to go on for? Are people ready to leave already? No? About 20 minutes. 20 minutes? All right, that's perfect. Anyway, I was sitting on my son's couch having written this book already and having it published. And um, many of you may remember The Princess Bride. There's even a Dharma book about talking about what you can write about. There's a Dharma book about the Dharma of the Princess Bride, written by somebody else. Actually, it was written, I think, by David Nickturn's son. Yeah, now what weird is that? But anyway, so I was sitting on, uh, on my son's couch, and he happened to have an old beaten-up copy of The Princess Bride. And I don't know if you remember it. It's William Goldman wrote it, and they made a movie out of it. And it's a pretty funny story, but um, when he wrote it, William Go Goldman wrote it, the, 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 uh, it, it's taken from a fairy tale that his father, you might remember, Peter Falk is, plays 
Goldman in the movie, and he's sort of the narrator. He is the narrator, not sort of. He's actually the narrator, the actual Dharma narrator. Anyway, so he's narrating the thing, and what he's narrating is um, the book. But 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 Pete, what Peter Falk is reading to the kid in the in in the actual movie and in the book is a classic uh, fairy tale, which um, is written by S.J. Morgan's, and it's called, and so the real title of The Princess Bride is uh, the classic tale of S.J. Morgenstein's The Bride and the High Adventures, Only the Good Parts. So I'm, I've latched on to, so this is only the good parts, you see, rather than it being 750 pages long and small print, it's 300 pages long and big print. Anyway, so this is, this is sort of the distilled version of, of a much longer, larger, more literary and scholarly um, telling of exactly the same chapters, the same three volumes of the first of the 120 volumes. And so this book uh, tells the story. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the book, and then I'm going to read, and then we'll have a little bit of time for questions and answers. So um, getting back to Tibet in the 10th or 11th century, it's really a bad time. I mean, it's a bad time everywhere in the 11th century, pretty much. I mean, everywhere, you know, it's, it's plague and war and poverty and famine. And, and that's true, uh, at least across, uh, we don't know that much about North America or Africa at the time, so this is a sort of an Asia-European-centric view of the universe, frankly. Um, so anyway, it, it's bad everywhere, and, and Tibet, uh, already, Buddhism had sort of spread to Tibet once or twice. And it had a good king, and the good king died or got assassinated. And it's sort of been broken. So, so not only is the world terrible, and there's famine and, and disease, but also nobody can get along with anybody. Sounds kind of familiar. Anyway, um, so there's many different factions, and, and the place is just basically going to hell. And uh, so Avalokitesvara, whose name we heard recently, uh, looks down uh, on Tibet uh, and with his great eye of compassion says, that's, that's really bad down there, we should do something. So he goes to his Buddha of compassion, Amitabha, They're sort of in the same Buddha family realm there. So Amitabha uh, says to Avalokitesvara, you know, you're right, things are really bad, we sh should do something. And so then Avalokitesvara says, well, what should we do? And Amitabha thinks about it for a while. And they come up with this idea of having this sort of celestial being be born on earth who be, will become a leader and, and, and unite all of Tibet and everything will be wonderful. Now, you'll be surprised to know that that turns out to be Gesar. Anyway, so they go through this whole machination, which is the first volume of the book where they embody this being called Dundrup, who is then uh, becomes uh, born. Uh, actually, he has a whole deal with Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava was a historical figure. 
who helped to bring um, Buddhism to Tibet in the 8th century. But by the 10th century, he had been kind of celestialized. So he was, and though he was still known to be a historical figure, and he has continued to be sort of celestialized to this day. But he had become celestialized, so he, he gets the job of uh, basically helping this whole plan happen. And so he finds um, this uh, Nagini princess, and Nagini is a serpent woman. Anyway, and she has this baby, uh, which, whose name is Joru, who is the baby form. I mean, he's, he's, Joru is basically just Gesar's name after he's born. And, um, and then he, uh, Joru, has a number of adventures as a child and um, breaks a lot of things as an adolescent and uh, creates, uh, he's told actually by Padmasambhava to create this illusion wherein he's killed a number of people. So he and his mother, uh, Gakmo, get exiled. And so they get exiled from uh, that part of Tibet called Ling. Um, to a different to the ma to a valley, um, and he he and his mom uh, live in the valley, and he basically has protectorship over this valley, and he's about seven or eight now. This is the part I'm going to read from, and um, they've had first they've moved there. And uh, in the course of moving there, they have certain adventures and stuff happens. And, and uh, one other thing about the book is that uh, it's written um, both in prose and verse. And usually within the verse, there's a lot of proverbs. One of the things, and this is true actually of all, all, most epics are written both in prose and verse, prosody it's called. And, um, and this uh, epic in particular incorporates a lot of Tibetan um, and bun proverbs, and I think there's some in here. And um, so anyway, so he's uh, moved, and um, and the land that he's moved to is is very, uh, or part of the land that he's moved to is very very barren because there are these uh, prairie dogs. They're called pike, or they're like prairie dogs, right? Uh, called pika, and they, it's a real thing. There are, really are pikas. And, uh, and so there's been demon pikas have sort of desolated this whole part of the neighborhood that he's moved into, um, desolate neighborhood that he's moved into. So the first thing he needs to do is um, sort of rid the area of the pika demons. And so that's what I'm going to read. And then uh, it, it alludes to uh, a slingshot. And a slingshot in Tibet is like a slingshot in South America, or a slingshot if you're David and David or Goliath. These were real weapons. A good person with a, you know, a slingshot that goes around like this, not, not this little rubber band thing. Uh, you can shoot a stone um, 50 or 60 yards with accuracy and kill stuff. So a slingshot is, is no particular laughing matter. And he's going to slingshot these um, kidney-shaped god demon stones, which are basically like little hand grenades, if you will, little Tibetan 10th century hand grenades. I think they saw them like around July 4th around here, but they have to know where to go. Anyway, so this is the part that I am going to read. And so it's going to talk a little bit about the Pika demons, but uh, since we're talking about violence, uh, we're going to give him the opportunity to liberate some other beings as well.
Okay, there I can see. Joru realized that the time had come to eliminate the pica demons, and he put three kidney-shaped god-demon lifestones into his trusty slingshot. Preparing to empty their mountain hideouts, he sang out this song. The song is Allah, 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 Tala leads the melody. You who are embodied as pica demons have decimated these great grassy plains, devouring its flower and leaves until only the dust of the black earth remains. As it is said in the Proverbs of the ancient people of Tibet, it is a pica that turns the earth to black and a thief that destroys the district. Your negative karma produced this rebirth. Ruining the green meadows, you have banished all joy from this land. This very day, with my slingshot, I will empty this realm of pica demons. May their negative karma be severed. May all beings know true happiness, and may every species rest in ease and comfort. Then, with a mighty effort, he loosed his slingshot. The stone struck, instantly killing the three principal pica demons, and with the roaring sound of a thousand dragons that followed, the whole colony was annihilated. By the strength of Joru's meditative awareness and compassion, however, their little pica minds were placed in the state of liberation. Meanwhile, there were merchants from Ladakh, which is way west of Tibet, en route to China with some 2,000 mules. The mules were carrying assorted loads of gold, silver, and precious silks. As they came into the valley, seven vicious whore bandits, whore is the north and east mostly of Tibet, um, over, anyway, these whore bandits overcame them, binding and beating even the oldest among them. Joru came to where they were held and overheard the din of their collective sobbing. Harshly, Joru told them, if you must cry, go home and cry. Forget about crying. You're not even supposed to laugh here. You must apologize to me, as I am now the landowner here, and you must make offerings to the mountain Zodor, Magyal Pamra. A Zodor is basically a, the ma everything in Tibet has a spirit. So that's, you know, the streams and the valleys and the mountains and, and the main mountain uh, Zodor or life spirit in Tibet, uh, or this part of Tibet, is Magyal Pamra. Refuse and my deadly slingshot will find your skull. Menacingly, he loaded a stone. The three merchants begged him, Dear Joru, we're just merchants from Ladakh. They told him in detail had the robbers how excuse me, the robbers had overcome them, beaten them, and stolen their goods. Please help us recover our goods and we'll do whatever you command. Joru replied, What a pity. I rule over this land, and even the Lord of Death is not allowed to come and pillage here. I allow a few butchers from Hor. In exchange for helping your Sorry, I couldn't help it. Uh, from now on, merchants traveling from Ladakh must bring me gifts and other scarfs as well as whatever I ask. Even though they quickly nodded their assent, they wondered how, how it could be that Joru, who still appeared as a small, oddly attired child, would be able to do as he had promised. He had 
attired himself in the skins of animals without tanning them. So he, he dripped sort of guts and blood on a pretty rare. He's a strange fellow. Anyway, Joe arrived riding his trusty staff and shouted at the bandits in a booming voice. Take heed, you seven thieves from horror. I am Joru, and you cannot raid merchants on my land. I am the ruler here and cannot abide what you have done. Overwhelmed by the sound of his mighty voice, the leader of the bandits said, What a commanding voice is coming from such a small boy. He must have concealed power. He urged the bandits away, and they fled, leaving all of their booty behind. The bandits could see their king, Toktok Ralchen up on the slope of the nine-pointed Vajra mountain where he was hunting with 99 of his men. They watched in alarm as Joru threw three stones with his slingshot, striking a crag above their king and his hunting party, letting loose a landslide that tumbled down and killed all 100 men and their horses. Immediately, through the power of his realization, Joru led their consciousness to the pure realm. So there you have it. Um, anyway, then he goes on and, and um, there's a famous horse race and he ascends to the throne and that's basically the end of the book. And um, I don't think, I hope I didn't give away too many spoilers because I do have copies if you'd like to purchase one. Um, but the, the point uh, that, I'm, uh, that, that I think we need to try to incorporate is that this is a really common story. It's a common story, you know, if, if you uh, go to the movies or you uh, read the newspaper um, or you um, engage uh, with the world at all. Uh, I think it's important that we understand uh, the notion of who we are and, and what we are, and and, and how uh, how we uh, reconcile uh, the qualities of a bodhisattva, um, to which we all aspire as uh, Mahayana practitioners. We aspire to uh, um, allow the enlightenment of all sentient beings, every blade of grass, prior to our own, um, and and that we. Uh, uh, in our practice and uh, in our lives um, are constantly um, doing our best and um, not perhaps always accomplishing that, but we, we live in a, in a world of, of great complexity and uh, I think it's uh, uh, of great value to uh, try to keep the whole, the whole picture uh, in our minds as much as we can uh, at all times. Anyway, I'd like to uh, thank you uh, for your indulgence. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, that would be great. Yeah? Uh, the subject of violence and hostility and anger is, uh, is on my mind for quite some time. Uh, recently, I heard a show on radio about where uh, a place deals with, um, with verbal violence, mm -hmm. so, uh, with the social media and, and so forth, and they're giving a story of 
some of the stuff with the adolescents where they use social media where this boy I guess it just they the way they talked about him was uh, so uh, um, you know horrible that uh, he took it and he, he they said well you know you should just kill yourself and he did yeah uh, so it's taken on another in a way in a, a sort of uh, subtle quantum I suppose with this verbalness of the violence that I think um, we're been subjected to for a very long time, but it's becoming more obvious that that is really a, a kernel of, mm -hmm. of the more uh, definitive form of actually physically hostility and physical violence. It, it seems to kind of start in some ways in this, what we're using. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's really a great point. Thank you. That's wonderful. I, and, and there's a lot that comes from that. I could give a whole other hour talk. You know, because it is kind of about intent. If you, if you go back uh, to karma as a concept, uh, that is uh, one action leading to another, you know, whether somebody's done something good or something bad or something looks good to you, but maybe it was really bad or looks like somebody did something bad, but it was really good. The, the notion of intent is really fundamental. And so there are places where it's written that, you know, to have a bad thought to produce violence is as bad as the act itself. Now, it's hard to wrap your brain around that, hard for me to wrap my brain around that, but the concept is there. And certainly, I think social media, I think the error, I mean, it's, I never knew about that. You know, we're always saying that our time is different from all other times. You know, ever since I was a child, people have been saying, Things are going faster than they've ever gone before. Well, you would think by now it would have spun out. I mean, frankly, we should just be over. I mean, so the time I was five years old, 60-something years ago, I won't say how many, people have been saying nothing's ever accelerated the way it's accelerating now. Well, you know, things that accelerate are getting faster and faster, and the thing itself is getting faster and faster, and the whole acceleration part is that the acceleration is accelerating and getting faster and faster. Anyway, so I don't know, I guess, is what I meant. But, I mean, it seems like this error is imbued with many different ways and, and manifesting violence in new and terrible ways. But I think anger's been around kind of a while, and I think people have been acting out kind of a while. But I, I think, and I think that the other, the other thing I was going to say about what you said, which I think is really important, is I think it's easy for people to overlook their own verbal abuse. And verbal abuse is probably far more common than physical abuse, which is far more common, you know, than blowing people up completely. But verbal abuse happens, you know, in the workplace and on the road and in the supermarket all the time. You know, it's possible to, you know, be really nasty to the person who's checking you in at the gym or checking you out at the marketplace. And it's the same kind of, you know, I'm angry. I want to be through this line. I don't want to, you know, that person is kind of slow in the checkout place. And why do they have to, you know, check their receipt anyway? Of course, I have to check my receipt. I have to get my 5% off. We wanted to extend it a little yeah, sure. Uh, more, though, is that verbal, 
verbal violence it comes from language yeah and language is also written mm -hmm. that this calls into question language in general Can I say something about that? sure I, I read once just about the language question of which is interesting I, I read once I think it was either in that book Sapiens or by the same fellow who wrote Sapiens and something else that there was some I don't know if it's a anthropologic or evolutionary theory or something about human language that it developed really for for two reasons one was just to be able to say you know one sheep for five bushels of apples and for people to be able to trade and barter in in a marketplace but that all other language really was a matter of elevating yourself comparing yourself to other people or trying to even like if you came home and you said to your whoever is at home, oh, you know, I saw this person today at the grocery store and blank, and you told a little story. It was partly about that person, but also to sort of say, see, I'm not like that. I'm better than that. And that there was a lot of implied judgmentalism in almost everything we say. And if you think about a lot of, almost all religions, I think, have sort of a silent aspect, you know, like a silent retreat or a thing that is intended to kind of cut down on that just kind of what we would call gossip, you know. But I don't know, it was sort of interesting. He, this fellow anyway, seemed to think that kind of language had evolved for that purpose almost mm -hmm. as a... It, it, uh, there, I don't, uh, I can't pronounce his name, or Nagaruna. Nagarjuna. Thank you. I think that bell is a hook. <laughs> so I was serious. If any would like either a bookmark or a book, bookmarks are free. The books are twenty dollars. They look like this, but they don't have so many folds in them. I'd be happy to sell you a copy. And if you can't 
it's also available. Uh, I can give you a bookmark and then you can remember the name. It is available on Barnes and Noble and Balboa and Amazon. But not in your favorite bookstore, I'll bet you. <laughs> anyway, thank you all. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.